from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, May 3rd. I'm Marco Werman. Chinese dissident Chen Guangchang reverses course and asks for asylum in the U.S. Critics blast the Obama administration's handling of his case. I think that they have fumbled it very seriously by, in some sense, overly encouraging or even some people would say coercing him into leaving the embassy. We'll hear from one of Chen's supporters here in the U.S. and later why Helsinki, Finland is saying thanks but no thanks to a Guggenheim Museum. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It's still not clear what's happening with blind Chinese dissident Chen Guangcheng. Earlier today, Chen told the BBC that he's been unable to meet with U.S. officials to discuss his desire to leave China. That would appear to be a violation of the deal American diplomats had reached with China before Chen left the protection of the U.S. embassy in Beijing yesterday. During his six days in the embassy, Chen said he wanted to stay in China. But he changed his mind soon after leaving, saying he feared for the safety of his family. Chen's case is embarrassing the Obama administration and creating fresh tensions between Beijing and Washington, threatening to overshadow a visit by Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. We'll hear more about that in a moment. First, though, Chen Guangcheng has been persecuted in China because of his work pressing for an end to forced abortions and sterilizations under China's one-child policy. And that work has helped Chen gain support in the U.S., Reggie Littlejohn is president of the advocacy group Women's Rights Without Frontiers. She testified at an emergency hearing on Chen's case in Washington today. Littlejohn spoke to us earlier about why her group worked to help Chen. We oppose forced abortion, forced sterilization, and infanticide. So it doesn't really matter whether you're pro-choice or pro-life philosophically. No one supports forced abortion because it's not a choice. And what we're doing is we are showing the unintended consequences of the one-child policy, which is the most violent policy against women, not only in the world today, but in the history of the world. Chen's case has created, obviously, a political firestorm. Uh, it's also, his case has also been embraced by a number of pro-life organizations in the United States. And it, it may not be part of your agenda, uh, Women's Rights Without Frontiers, but it doesn't mean it's, uh, it's not getting co-opted by anti-abortion advocates. Do you you think Mr. Chen has become a representative, in a way, for the pro-life movement? Well, I think that that he has, but I don't know that he would necessarily identify himself as pro-life. No one, to my knowledge, has ever asked him that question. It's clear that he opposes coercion. Now, in terms of the pro-life groups that have gotten behind him, I think that's great because, as I said, it doesn't matter whether you're pro-life or pro-choice. No one supports forced abortion because it's not a choice. And I challenge the pro-choice organizations to get behind Chen Guanchen because he very specifically has given his life to oppose coercion of women. It's interesting. I mean, you you work in a highly polarized, politicized subject of abortion rights. 
is this one of those rare places where abortion rights advocates and anti-abortion advocates uh, may actually be coming together? I believe it's the only place. I think that uh, that opposing forced abortion is is something that everybody can agree on. And I also think that opposing the selective abortion of baby girls is something that people can agree on. And so Women's Rights Without Frontiers um, is the only organization I'm aware of that is walking this tightrope. Uh, and so far, we're doing it pretty effectively. And what it means is, yeah, the pro-life uh, community has embraced the issue. But also, I, I have uh, addressed the European Parliament twice I was um, I addressed the Obama White House once more pro-choice venues have also opened their doors to women's rights without frontiers because we do not take a position on the life issue. Well, let me ask the question in a different way. Does all the hoopla over Chen now complicate the abortion discussion here in the United States? Are you beginning to sense that? The way that it gets sidestepped, when you talk about the mainstream media, they really mostly characterize him as a human rights activist, and they might not even mention that his specific issue is forced abortion. Right, but I just checked out this website, lifenews.com, that talks about Chen's case and then asks readers below to click like if you're pro-life. Right, so uh, that's the way that they're presenting it. You know, I'm very grateful to the pro-life organizations for embracing this issue, because if they hadn't, it wouldn't be getting the traction that it does. I just am challenging the pro-choice uh, organizations to do the same thing. I mean, you could just as easily have an article about Chen Wen Chen and, uh, on a pro-choice website and have somebody say, click here if you're pro-choice. Mm. Ms. Littlejohn, what do you think uh, of how the Obama administration has handled Chen's case? I think uh, that it's abysmal. I think that they have fumbled it very seriously by, in some sense, overly encouraging or even some people would say coercing him into leaving the embassy uh, and then not following through with the escort inside of the hospital that they had promised. Now, that being said, I heard that they have said that if Chen indeed does want to come to the United States, that they can help him. And that is what has to happen. Chen's life is in danger in China. So is his family. And the United States need to grant him asylum and bring them all here. Reggie Littlejohn, president of Women's Rights Without Frontiers, an advocacy group. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much. Will Inboden is a distinguished scholar at the Strauss Center at the University of Texas, Austin. Previously, he served as senior director for strategic planning for the National Security Council under President Bush. Uh, We just heard Reggie Littlejohn, uh, Will, saying the Obama administration has completely fumbled the Chen case. What is your sense? Uh, I would not go quite that far yet, but I'm growing increasingly concerned, Marco. Um, I uh, after the initial reports yesterday, I wrote pretty favorably that it looked like the Obama administration had pulled off a good deal based on two conditions, that Chen is allowed to stay in China and enroll in law school, and that uh, second, the Chinese government has is agreeing to honor his, uh, honor his freedom and his rights. What we're hearing now is it seems like uh, those conditions are are not being met. And so that's why I initially wanted to give the Obama administration, you know, all the benefit of the doubt here, uh, that they had secured uh, sufficient agreements from the Chinese government to honor Chen's rights. But uh, it's now looking like that that may not be the case. So this uh, could not be ending ending so well. Right. And yesterday you also wrote on your blog that it'd be a good thing if Chen stays in China. Uh, Do you still feel that way today? 
Well, the first principle in all of these uh, cases with human rights dissidents is to understand and honor the desire of the dissidents. Uh, at the time, it sounded like Chen wanted to stay in China and, you know, precisely because his family's there and so he could continue his activism. And so that's why I was uh, very favorable towards the deal the, uh, the administration cut. Now it's looking like two things have changed. One, Chen is uh, realizing that he does not have as much protection uh, either from the U.S. government or certainly from the Chinese government. And second, uh, that changes his calculation, uh, and he now seems like he wants to come to the U.S. And if that's the case, uh, I would certainly be supportive, and I hope the administration would as well, of bringing him to the U.S. so he can seek asylum here. What should, what can the U.S. do right now? Well, uh, Marco, let me share an anecdote of a similar case I worked on when I was working for President Bush at the White House that gives one or two illustrations of ways I think the Obama administration could have done more and maybe still could do more. Mm. Uh, in 2007, President Bush arranged to meet in Washington at the White House with three prominent Chinese dissidents who were visiting the U.S. for just a week, and then they were planning on returning to China. Shortly before the meeting, the Chinese government sent a very nasty threat to the White House saying that if these guys returned to China, you know, their safety could not be guaranteed. In other words, that they were going to be arrested. Uh, so before President Bush met with them, he sent a back-channel message to the Chinese government saying, I, President Bush, am personally invested in the welfare of these three dissidents, um, and if anything happens to them, that will be uh, cause a severe disruption in U.S.-China relations. We then followed up by having our embassy in Beijing send um, diplomats to meet the dissidents at the airport in Beijing when they returned, escort them to their apartments, and keep in very regular touch with them. And for the next year and a half, the duration of President Bush's um, administration, they were left alone. Uh, so I hope the Obama administration, for this to work, President Obama and Secretary Clinton are going to need to get personally involved. They're going to need to communicate to Hu Jintao, to Xi Jinping, the, the leader in waiting, that um, they are personally committed to the welfare of Chen Guangcheng um, and, to, and to seeing that his, his rights are honored. I mean, China has already expressed anger that the United States harbored an activist. How much worse can this get? Well, uh, I mean, potentially it potentially it could get worse. I don't want to speculate on any specific measures there, but you know, China might uh, you know look to disrupt relations with the U.S. and other areas. Um, they may continue their roundup of other human rights dissidents. They might try to put more pressure on on Chen's family, but the Chinese government is calculating on these things, and they are they are going to make their decisions based on uh, what the cost to them might be of of escalating. And if they know that President Obama and Secretary Clinton are personally interested in this case and are personally involved, uh, they may decide it's, it's, not, it's not worth it to make things worse for, for Chen Guangcheng or for other dissidents in China. Will Inboden, assistant professor at the University of Texas, Austin, and former senior director for strategic planning for the Bush National Security Council. Thanks, Will. Thank you very much. The case of Chen Guangcheng may be causing some ulcers among Chinese officials and U.S. diplomats, but to many Americans, Chen's story might seem more like an exciting real-life thriller, as the world's Aaron Schachter reports. Chen's story is like something out of Hollywood. Just ask Stephen Colbert, who this week called Chen a total badass. This dissident was guarded by 90 to 100 police, so he feigned illness, lulling his guards into complacency. Then he slipped out of the house in darkness and scaled a wall, injuring his foot, jumping to the ground, but still managed to cross a river, then rendezvoused with friends who drove him more than 300 miles to the capital, Beijing, and he is blind. The Chinese activist community is incredibly savvy. 
about how the world's media works. Susan Moeller heads the International Center for Media and the Public Agenda at the University of Maryland. She says, as Colbert suggests, that Chen's story resonates with an American public raised on Mission Impossible and other action flicks, and that Chinese activists know how to appeal to that sensibility. They've learned, at least since Tiananmen Square, what the world pays attention to. And I I find it hard to believe that there wasn't some intentionality in Mr. Chen sort of coming to the fore. He's got a great backstory. Moeller says there are lots of moments in history when a man or woman who didn't necessarily have the most obvious credentials as a revolutionary became an instant media hero. Take Wael Gonim. The Google executive rose to prominence during last year's Egyptian revolution, grabbing the limelight from activists who'd spent decades fighting the Mubarak regime. So Chen Guangchan as a potential subject for, say, People magazine? It's not that far-fetched. He is blind. (laughs) Yes, there's that. He also always wears cool shades, because he's blind, and he's kind of good-looking. But Chinese writer Diane Weilang, author of The Eye of Jade, says there's more even than Chen's personal story. His case, coupled, I believe, with the Bao Xilai scandal, it seems to be somehow a new scenario in China that lots of these events that traditionally that had been covered up or been able to be dealt in private are public knowledge and almost a sort of staged event. There's also the fact that he ran to the American embassy just as Hillary Clinton was arriving in Beijing. But what could have been an easy made-for-TV story of a blind dissident escaping and finding refuge with U.S. help is today not so clear-cut. Again, Susan Moeller. It's the naivete uh, part that I really have the hardest time with. And I think, frankly, there's a lot more of the story to, to come out. Why did a man who'd been harassed for years think the Chinese government would let him live a normal life? Regardless of what deal was cut with the U.S., why did Chen change his mind about asking for U.S. asylum? Right now, the once simple tale of a blind Chinese dissident hero isn't so easy to follow. But perhaps that will make it more interesting. For The World, I'm Aaron Schachter. Follow the ins and outs, the twists and turns of the Chen case. Our coverage and the latest from our partners at the BBC is at theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Finland's capital, Helsinki, has a pretty happening cultural life. The city was named a world design capital this year. It boasts 80 museums. That includes the Museum of Contemporary Art Kiasma, a building with a striking design that opened in 1998. It's not surprising that the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum and Foundation wanted to join this scene. It proposed building a new Guggenheim Museum on Helsinki's waterfront. But city officials have now turned down the project, saying it would cost too much. Mark Bosworth reports for the BBC in Helsinki. He says that Guggenheim thought its project was a good fit for the Finnish capital. The Guggenheim said it chose Helsinki as a location for one of its museums because of a strong local interest and a big tradition in art and design, as well as Helsinki's plans to further develop its harbour area. 
Now, if approved, this would have been the sixth Guggenheim Museum in the world, the other museums being in New York, Venice, Berlin, Abu Dhabi, and of course, that iconic building on the waterfront in Bilbao in northern Spain, which was designed by Frank Gehry. But a notice on the Helsinki City Council website stated quite simply that the city board rejects the project. This under the equally mundane heading, Decision Bulletin Number 17. Mm. All very mundane endings for a highly controversial subject which has really gripped the people of Helsinki. Right. Well, maybe there's something to be seen in what the culture minister of of Finland had warned at one point. Uh, This museum would cost uh, nearly $200 million, and the culture minister said uh, it would cost the Finnish taxpayers too much. That's right. Well, a study commissioned by the city of Helsinki in January this year showed that the museum was expected to cost around 140 million euros. Now, that's about 184 million U.S. dollars. The plus side, they said, was that this would help boost cultural tourism to the country. But the uh, Finnish culture minister, Paavo Arinmäki, he's been extremely sceptical towards these plans. And now he's assumed that the Finnish taxpayers would actually end up paying close to 100 million euros of those construction costs. Right, that's about $130 million. And I understand Finland's artist community was also worried about their financial resources if this museum were built. That's right. I mean, opponents to these plans argued that the costs were too much, considering the current economic climate, Finland being a member of the Eurozone. And the real fear amongst those artists was that with so much money going towards this new Guggenheim project, that money would be diverted away from funding, which is much needed for the local artist community here. Mark, it seems to me that five years ago or so, no major capital on earth would have turned down a a Guggenheim Museum. I mean, it's prestige. It draws tourists, as we see in Bilbao, Spain, with the Guggenheim Museum there. Is this story more about the current austerity that has gripped Europe, do you think? I think it could well be. As you mentioned, Bilbao, that building designed by Frank Gehry, we all know what that building looks like. It's so iconic. Many of us would never have gone to Bilbao until that museum was built. And it did wonders for Bilbao. When the idea was first mentioned, many people in Helsinki did want a Guggenheim Museum. But of course, the current economic climate proved to be a major factor. Now, Mark, I understand that Guggenheim has not totally put this project uh, in the trash, uh, so it's assured by their foundation and museum director in New York. What are the scenarios by which the Guggenheim Museum proposal for Helsinki might still happen? Well, as things stand at the moment, there will be no Guggenheim on the waterfront in Helsinki. And now the situation is this. The director of the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum and Foundation, Richard Armstrong, said the museum would have benefited the city. And in a statement released earlier, he accepts that the commission has made this decision. But he's come out saying he doesn't want to go to Bergen. He doesn't want to go to Oslo or Copenhagen. He wants to go to Finland and the Helsinki region, where he says they have so much to learn. He says he's disappointed, but he's ready to continue the struggle. So at the moment, this story is certainly far from over. Mark Bosworth with the BBC in Helsinki. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Marco.
Mexico holds a presidential election on July 1st. The vote could usher the PRI back to power. That's the old ruling party, which was booted out of office in 2000 after a seven-decade hold on the presidency. Most Mexicans are desperate for a change and fed up with a drug war that's left tens of thousands dead. The next big event in the campaign is a televised candidates' debate on Sunday. Yet despite the high stakes, many Mexicans will be watching something else. The world's William Troop explains. The debate is scheduled for 8 p.m. on Sunday. It will be carried by several TV stations, just not the two biggest. One, Televisa's Channel 2, is sticking to its original programming, a dance competition for kids that's wildly popular with viewers. The other, TV Azteca, is showing a playoff game between two of Mexico's top soccer teams. Election officials want the game rescheduled, but they're not declaring the debate a national priority, which could compel all TV stations to carry it. Instead, they've opted to ask politely. The head of the Federal Election Institute told reporters it would be nice if the game took place at another time. Well, that's not going to happen. The head of TV Azteca replied with a Twitter message. He said, if you want to see the debate, watch Channel 5. If you want soccer, watch Azteca. I'll show you the ratings later. It's clear that soccer will win, says Mexican author and political commentator Guadalupe Loaesa. She says many Mexicans just aren't interested in what their politicians are saying anymore. We are so demoralized. We are so bruised emotionally that of course we need distractions. Of course we're up to here with politics. I asked my own husband if he was planning to watch the debate. He said, hmm, I think I'll watch the soccer game. Naturally, I shot him a dirty look and he backed down. But unfortunately, the TV executive is right. In the end, sports will always get more viewers than politics. Loesa says that's a shame because the debate is an important moment in the presidential race. The frontrunner, the PRI's Enrique Peña Nieto, is a young, handsome career politician who's prone to gaffes when he speaks off the cuff. So the debate is a golden opportunity to see Peña Nieto under pressure, away from his pre-packaged campaign appearances. The fact that he's 20 points ahead in the polls tells you something, though. Loaesa says Mexico's politicians market themselves as products, valuing a shiny package more than actual policy ideas. She blames the media, and political analyst Mauricio Merino agrees. Speaking on Mexico City's W radio this morning, Merino said Mexico's 2012 presidential vote will be remembered for the way the media trivialized politics. For The World, I'm William Troop. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, Osama bin Laden's documents and his unflattering view of Vice President Joe Biden. And later, a battle between drivers and cyclists in Canada. There's this weird um, culture war. You know, in one of the newspapers, they're calling bicyclists helmet heads. Those stories ahead on The World. The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's been a year since the death of al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden. President Obama marked the anniversary with his speech from Afghanistan a couple of days ago. Bin Laden was killed in neighboring Pakistan by U.S. special forces who raided his compound. That raid yielded a cache of documents and letters, some of which were released online by U.S. authorities today. The BBC security correspondent Gordon Carrera says only 17 documents have been made public. That's all we have today, so close to 200 pages at most, um, 17 documents, some from bin Laden, some from other people perhaps to bin Laden. There was talk that a total of 6,000 documents had been found in Abbottabad at that compound on various flash drives Mm. and uh, computers and so on. So it is a tiny sample, and of course that makes it very hard to know how representative it really is of what was found and why these have been selected and not other documents to be released. Now, one of the big reveals of these letters is that uh, they show al-Qaeda as an organization divided. Uh, How so? What were the details on that? Well, I think what's interesting is the relationship between al-Qaeda's leadership around Osama bin Laden and the affiliates, those groups which had allied themselves to al-Qaeda in places like Iraq, in Yemen, in Somalia, but which al-Qaeda's leadership and Osama bin Laden couldn't necessarily control. And you can sense, in, in a way, from some of the documents, Osama bin Laden wanting to exercise a kind of command and control over the organisation and those who, who follow him, but actually not really being able to from this isolated position he was in. There's clear criticism, particularly from a number of documents, about al-Qaeda in Iraq and the way in which it had undermined support for itself by killing a large number of Muslim civilians in Iraq. There's also fascinating notes, one from an associate, we think, talking about even rebranding al-Qaeda. Changing the name. Well, the name, changing the name, basically saying the name has been discredited. Did they have any suggestions for new names? Uh, More religiously focused ones Mm. about monotheism, uh, which aren't exactly catchy in their titles, but um, uh, it doesn't look like it really got anywhere. But that concern over image, I think, and, and presentation is clearly key. And also the sophistication with which is a U.S.-born media advisor kind of analyzes the various media outlets in the United States. That was a pretty close analysis. Well, it was, and it goes down to which correspondence. I mean, it names correspondence on, on different American TV networks, even. Fox versus CNN uh, looks at whether they could follow a strategy of passing information to certain journalists and then seeing what happens and trying to get a, a better means of getting their message out. We can't rely on Al Jazeera and Internet forums, it says fascinating how much time they spent thinking, I suppose, about the media and about image, as well as attacks, because there is material in there about attacks, about trying to shoot down a plane with President Obama on board if it came to Pakistan or Afghanistan. Right. Well, I was just going to mention that the the documents reveal this order from bin Laden to his associates that they ought to be looking for opportunities to assassinate President Obama or General David Petraeus, but he warned them not to kill Vice President Joe Biden. Do do the letters explain his reasoning? Well, yes. I mean, it's a rather bizarre little passage where it basically says, if if these leaders come to Pakistan or Afghanistan, let's try and shoot down their planes with a missile. But not Joe Biden. And the reason it says, because they think he wouldn't make a good president if if President Obama was killed and if he he took over. So better to keep him in place. I mean, it's a slightly bizarre bit of logic. And it's one of a few areas where you sense a slight disconnect from reality with, with some of the letters. Gordon, as you said, the sense uh, we get here from these letters is of uh, bin Laden's control over al-Qaeda ebbing away. How does that reframe the decision to kill him last year, in your view? 
I think for a while people questioned whether he was actually in operational control of al-Qaeda. And I think for a long time people realised that he wasn't. Basically, to stay alive until he was killed, he was having to keep such a low profile that he could not command his organisation. I think that's confirmed by these documents. And I think, in that sense, his death did not affect the day-to-day -day operations of al-Qaeda that much. Mm. The drone strikes in Pakistan and Afghanistan, to some extent, certainly have in killing those people who were operationally commanding al-Qaeda. That's where the real impact has been. But then we have seen this dispersal of al-Qaeda to places like Yemen and parts of Africa, where there it has become, if you like, more virulent and more dangerous, and a shift away from Pakistan and Afghanistan. So I think his death clearly was symbolically hugely important, but the operational impact is a bit harder to gauge, and I think these documents confirm that. We've got a link to the al-Qaeda documents at theworld.org. Gordon Carrera, the BBC security correspondent, thank you very much. Thank you. Today's GeoQuiz gets around on two wheels. Amsterdam, Copenhagen, Barcelona, and Berlin have earned reputations as bike-friendly cities. Good bike lanes, safety rules, and enforcement all play a part. One place that used to rank high on the bike-friendly list is a Canadian city, the one we want you to name today. This city is about a 400-mile direct flight from Chicago. That flight path would take you up over Lake Michigan and the tip of Lake Huron. But let's get back on the ground here. This city used to have big ideas about promoting safe bicycle commuting. That's changing, but you'll still risk a $90 ticket if you're caught riding without one of those little chrome bells on your handlebars. The city, which you've probably guessed by now, is Toronto. Here's something you may not know about Canada's biggest city. There's a war going on in Toronto, motorists versus cyclists. And both sides are claiming they're the injured party. The world's Jason Margolis has more. Toronto Mayor Rob Ford cruised to victory a year and a half ago, pledging to end what he dubbed the war on the car. He argued that bike lanes were taking away space for automobiles. Here's Ford speaking in 2010 as a Toronto City Council member. And what I compare bike lanes to is swimming with the sharks. Sooner or later, you're going to get bitten. And every year, we have dozens of people that get hit by cars or trucks. Well, no wonder. Roads are built for buses, cars, and trucks, not for people on bikes. And, you know, I feel my heart bleeds for them when I hear someone gets killed. But it's their own fault at the end of the day. Since Ford came into office, Toronto hasn't just stopped putting in bike lanes. It started removing some of them. Ford's office didn't respond to repeated interview requests, but cyclists I stopped on the streets of Toronto were happy to share their thoughts on the mayor. To have the war against bikes, or the, you know, in his case, what he believed was a war against cars, is insane and ludicrous as far as I'm concerned. He's awful. He's completely awful. That was Christine Montgomery and Sean Seifert. John Barber is also no fan of the mayor and his car-friendly policies. He writes a column for the Globe and Mail newspaper about city life in Toronto. 
He's also been cycling in the city for 50 years. There's this weird culture war. You know, in one of the newspapers, they're calling bicyclists helmet heads. You're in part of some kind of tribe, and they impute all kinds of motives to you. And there's this kind of war between people who... or Somebody's trying to trump up a war between bicyclists and cars. It never existed in the past. Fifteen years ago, Bicycling Magazine named Toronto North America's best city for cycling. Now, Toronto is the bike collision capital of Canada with more accidents per capita than any other major Canadian city. Yet many Toronto motorists get up in arms when there's talk of narrowing roads to add bike lanes, says Barber. Nobody says, well, hey, we're killing people at twice the rate of Vancouver, you know? Shouldn't we try to think of making these streets a little bit safer? Many motorists feel that cyclists are the ones making the streets unsafe. There's been plenty of online discussion on this topic. Some say reckless bikers pose a threat to pedestrians and other cyclists. Others complain about, quote, idiot bikers who veer in and out of traffic, ignoring the rules of the road. John Barber would like to see police enforce those rules for cyclists. But he says in the end, bikes need their own space, and the city needs more bike lanes. He calls the mayor's stance completely crazy. People want bicycle lanes everywhere in North America. You know, there's a demand among the constituents for bicycle infrastructure, and nothing could be cheaper. It's a matter of painting lines, right? Painting some lines on the road may be cheap, but there's another cost, explains Nancy Smith-Lee, director of the Toronto Centre for Active Transportation. Streets are fairly narrow, so that if you put in a bike lane, you have to take something out. It's either a traffic lane or um, parking, and for the most part... When the parking is removed, that's the most contentious issue. One big problem is what cyclists here call the door prize, when somebody getting out of their car hits you with their door. Smith Lee advocates getting rid of some on-street parking to create a few bike corridors. She says many people don't react so well to this. People go bananas, but I think it's, it's what needs to happen. Here's the counter-argument. Adding bike lanes will help some cyclists but will have a negative effect on many more drivers. Cycling safety became front-page news in Toronto last fall when a young mother, who was also five months pregnant, was killed on her bike. She was crushed under the wheels of a truck. In a separate incident, an enraged driver chased a cyclist onto a sidewalk in his car. Add it all up, it may sound like Toronto's streets have turned into some kind of a roller derby, Not so, says Ron Buehling, a professor of transportation geography at the University of Toronto and a bike commuter. He went back and looked at police reports over the past decade. And we're not seeing dramatic increases in fatalities or injuries of any kind or or much change in uh, the frequency of injury on our major arterials. He says what's happening is that other North American cities are becoming much safer for cyclists much faster. Meanwhile, progress in Toronto has stalled. Toronto has been averaging more than 1,100 reported cycling collisions over the past five years. Add one more to this year's tally. I've not had uh, a collision with a motor vehicle, uh, except for today, actually, the day that I'm coming to speak to you about cycling in Toronto. Euling was sideswiped by a car. He was not injured. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, Toronto. Want to see the mayor of Toronto complain about cyclists flipping him the bird? Check out our video at theworld.org.
The world's China correspondent, Mary Kay Magsad, does a lot of biking in Beijing, and she's joined us here in Boston this week. Mary Kay, uh, if you're to believe the pictures, Beijing, at least some years ago, was all about bicycles, thick with two-wheelers. What's a bike car ratio like these days? Well, let me start with the first time I was in Beijing in 1989, and I got on a bike, and I was in the middle of this sea of hundreds of bicycles. And, you know, it was a little daunting, actually, because you think, oh, my goodness, you know, people are so close to each other, there are going to be accidents, how do you maneuver? But it was kind of like a ballet. Everyone knew how to maneuver around everyone else, and it was all very graceful, and everyone Mm. was hyper aware of everyone else who was around them. These days, there are hardly any bicycles in the bike lanes um, because it's become the done thing. If you have the money, you get a car. Um, And if you don't have the money to get a car, you at least get an electric moped, which make almost no noise. So when they're rushing up behind you when you're in the bike lane, it's very unnerving. Oh, what was that? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And and they, you know, go twice as fast as bicycles. So you, you you still have to be hyper aware, but in a different way, because cars will try to take over your bike lane coming from both directions. You know, some will be going the wrong way in your bike lane, like directly toward you. Mm. So you just have to sort of maneuver around obstacle courses. But you did say there are bike lanes. So that's kind of a sign of something, progress. Well, there are bike lanes. There have been bike lanes in China for as long as I've been going into China. So since 1989 and and before, um, big bike lanes. Mm. I mean, bike lanes that could fit, you know, like two lanes of traffic of, you know, cars, because there were so many bikes. You needed to have that much space for the bikes to flow. When I first visited China, there were hardly any cars on the street. So you had these big, empty lanes where the cars were supposed to be, and then the bicycle lanes were completely full. Now it's the opposite. Do you find any aggression between this kind of brand-new population of car drivers and people who are still riding bikes? Oh, sure, because the way that most people make right turns is to speed up and not look. So if you're a bicyclist or a pedestrian and you're trying to cross the street, you just have to be really aware of who's coming at you and know that if they're in the right lane and are going to be making a right turn, it doesn't matter that you have a green light. What matters is you want to survive to get across the street. For you and for most of the Chinese bicyclists you see, helmet or no helmet? Never a helmet. No Not one wears, you, no Chinese, nobody? No one wears a helmet. Bicycle traffic moves fairly slowly in Beijing. It's not like anyone's going 30 miles an hour. You're going 10. Yeah, but you can still fall down at 10 miles an hour and break your head open. You know, there are accidents where you know people get hit by cars and so forth, but generally... You know, as long as you're kind of aware of your surroundings and not taking undue risks and cutting across traffic, you don't see a lot of that happening. Now, you indicated that if you're upwardly mobile, the second you've got the money, you get a car, you leave your bike. But, I mean, who really is riding the bikes these days? I mean, in Holland, you find, you know, bankers in, you know, Armani suits riding their bikes to work. Is that the case in China? So foreigners are riding bikes. Workers are riding bikes, ones who can't afford the cars. And just in the last year or two, I've noticed more upper-middle-class Chinese on really nice bikes. And I think that's because over, like, two or three years post-Olympics, there was an evolution in attitudes from, you know, oh, look at those quirky foreigners who are riding these beat-up bicycles when they could be in a nice air-conditioned car. Mm. And then sort of rethinking and thinking, we've been sitting in the same place for half an hour and not moving. Maybe the bicycle's not such a bad thing just a a pleasant way to get around town and often the most efficient way. The world's China correspondent, Mary Kay Magsad, thanks a lot and enjoy the road, but stay safe. (laughs) Thanks. This is PRI.
The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS and Masterpiece, presenting the new season of Sherlock, starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman as crime fighting's favorite team. The game is on Sunday, May 6th at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. When Tunisia became the first country to oust its dictator in the Arab Spring last year, there were heady expectations of new freedoms and democracy. That included press freedoms. But today, a Tunisian court fined the head of a TV station there for disturbing public order and threatening public morals. The crime? Broadcasting the Franco-Iranian animated film Persepolis by Marjan Satrapi. Sabri Benashur reported on press freedoms in Tunisia in the weeks after the revolution. Sabri, what was the objection to this film? There's a very short scene in the film where this little girl is flying through the air in a dream and sees a giant cloudy figure of God. And in Islam, you cannot depict prophets or God in any way like that. So what does this really mean for freedom of expression then in Tunisia right now? Well, even though the fine was pretty small in some ways, $1,700, it was levied based on old laws, pre-revolutionary laws that are very vague and that send a signal to both journalists or the public that when it comes to these moral issues, you have to watch out. So what do Tunisians make of the verdict then? Well, they're split. There are some who say it's an affront to... Uh, their faith, and he should have gotten a lot more than a fine. Uh, I spoke to his lawyer. His lawyer says, you know, this is a sad day for freedom in Tunisia, for for freedom of expression in Tunisia. And there are lots of people commenting even on Facebook saying this was a really shameful ruling. So, you know, take your pick. What happens to the TV executive now who uh, allowed Persepolis to be broadcast? Well, he'll pay the fine, and that'll be that. But, you know, before this trial, he received death threats. His house was sacked. His family threatened. So, you know, his lawyer says he's still fearful of those kinds of consequences. So, Sabri, this is a a ruling on morality. What about political free speech there? Well, it's important to note that Tunisia, in terms of political speech, is night and day from what it was before the revolution. Mm -hmm. So this ruling does not appear to have any bearing on political speech. It does have a major bearing on this morality, public morals question. Uh, politically, people are still making fun of their politicians on the radio. Reporter Sabri Benashore, thanks very much for the update. You're welcome. Now to another kind of speech. You know about fan clubs, groups of diehard fans who go to the ends of the earth for their favorite celebrity. But what about anti-fan clubs? Korean rapper Tableau became the victim of one. His real name is Daniel Lee. He was once a successful hip-hop artist with fans around the globe, but then someone started an online smear campaign. Among the claims was that Dan Lee stole an identity and lied about graduating from Stanford University. Reporter Joshua Davis wanted to set the story straight. He writes about it in the latest issue of Wired magazine. What Daniel Lee, the rapper in Korea, communicated to me was that he was being accused of not being himself. Uh, He felt that he was living in a Kafka novel almost, where no matter what he said, no matter what he did, no matter what proof he provided, these people who were attacking him would not believe that he was the Daniel Lee who had gone to Stanford and graduated with two degrees in 2002. When did Dan Lee find out? Who had started this anti-fan club, if you will? Let let me answer that in a different way. I was curious to find out why this had taken off 
in 2011. Daniel Lee, the rapper, had been popular for many years. He had broken out uh, in Korea in the early part of the 2000s. So why did it take so long for people to suddenly get very angry about uh, this topic? I flew to Korea. I met with a number of the hecklers. They indicated to me that there were a number of factors. One was the fact that at the end of 2010, uh, Dan Lee had gotten married. Uh, that may have alienated some fans, but look, celebrities get married all the time, and that doesn't engender a witch hunt. And then there was another factor that was brought up, which that there was a family member or somebody claiming to be a family member who had begun posting online at the end of 2010 and the beginning of 2011 uh, and was essentially calling Dan Lee a liar and saying that he uh, had exaggerated any number of things about his academic record. And that family member uh, was a cousin of Dan Lee's. His name is Sung Min Cho. Is he essentially the one who started this? It's a little uh, unclear. What we do know is that somebody posting under that name started calling Dan Lee a liar. And fans and anti-fans of Lee's paid attention to this. And they cited it as evidence, as now this is somebody that we can 100% trust, one person said. This is a family member. And that seemed to coalesce the movement against Dan Lee. Why do you think he did it? Was it jealousy? Well, I, I spoke to him. Uh, I called uh, Samuel Cho up and talked to him a couple times on the phone. And he said very clearly that it was not jealousy. And he spoke at length about his experiences in high school. Uh, and he detailed for me some of the transgressions that he felt Lee had made in high school. Uh, so it was clear to me that, that Mr. Cho was still thinking about high school and things that he accused Lee of doing at the time that still bothered him. Joshua, was it your investigation and your reporting for Wired that turned the light on Mr. Cho, or was it Dan Lee who uh, suspected that Mr. Cho was the one who kind of launched this anti-fan club? Well, Dan Lee suspected that it was Cho. Uh, and when I initially asked Lee who was responsible or what was responsible for this backlash, he didn't want to talk about it. So I started digging into the story, and it was in the course of digging into it that I found that there were postings online from this family member who had disparaged Lee early on, uh, even before the beginning of the backlash. And so it occurred to me that, hmm, this is curious. Maybe this, uh, this person posting under the name of the cousin had ignited the controversy. And when I looked further into it, I discovered that the hecklers were citing the purported cousin's postings. You know, Joshua, you begin your article with a, a scene out the, outside the legendary Fillmore in New York where Dan Lee was part of a Korean hip-hop showcase. Long line to see him. He was famous. How close is he to getting his music career back? Is there any way he can revive it at this point? Well, he just released a solo album titled Fever's End, and the album did extraordinarily well. MTV called it one of the world's best five debut albums in 2011. Mm -hmm. It seems to me like he may have reestablished himself. Joshua Davis of Wired Magazine. You can read his article, The Stalking of Daniel Lee, at theworld.org. 
Thank you very much, Joshua. My pleasure. And that's all for us today. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. We'll be back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.